0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: 2022 marks 600 years since the death of Henry V a Plantagenet and a member of the House of Lancaster, Henry V ruled England and Ireland between 1413 and 1422. He is perhaps best known for his military success during the Hundred Years' War against France, and in particular for his victory at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. But because this is not just the Tudors, we aren't here to talk about King Henry himself but about Shakespeare's eponymous play, which tells the period of Henry's life that sees his rise to power and includes his momentous victory at Agincourt. Today I'll be talking to Duncan Sourkeld, Emeritus Professor of Shakespeare and Renaissance Literature at the University of Chichester, author of Madness and Drama in the Age of Shakespeare, Shakespeare Among the Courtesans and Shakespeare in London. He's a literary scholar who uses a historic approach to not only investigate Shakespeare's work, but the nature of his world. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll remember his wonderful episode with me on the London prison of Bridewell. If you haven't heard that, search back for it, it's fabulous. Also joining me today is Alice Smith, a theatre historian whose research looks at the often overlooked roles of women in the establishment and success of the early modern stage. Alice was a brilliant MA student of mine and of Duncan's who won a fully funded place at the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham to do her PhD. And I'm delighted that she joins us too. Well, it is an absolute treat to see you both. First of all, for those who are unfamiliar with Henry V by Shakespeare or haven't seen it for a while, could you remind us about it? Tell us about the major characters, what happens?
2: Okay. well, the play is the fourth, the last in a series of plays that began with Richard II, which he started writing in about 1595. And Henry V is a play written around about early 1599. He's covered... Richard II, then Henry IV, Part One, Henry IV, Part Two, and now Henry V, who is in the previous plays a young rascal rapscallion who gets involved in all kinds of shenanigans and escapades and is rather a scurrilous figure. In fact, his father feels incredibly let down by his son. So Henry V is a play about Reformation. It's about this young rapscallion being a reformed character, And he is in Act 1 manipulated by the bishops of Canterbury and Ely to go to war in France. The reason why he's being manipulated is because something a bit like the dissolution of the monasteries has been proposed by Henry IV, who's now dead. And if Henry V makes good on that, then the church loses a huge amount of land and estate and clout and all the rest of it. So Henry's going to go to war. And he's completely sort of committed to this idea throughout the play, almost religiously so. So one of the things about this play is it's about kingship, it's about warfare, it's about invasion, it's about masculinity. But it's also a play about consciousness and thinking. And Henry V is committed all the way through to... This objective of winning back lands that he's been persuaded to think that he has some entitlement to the throne of France, going way back through the generations to Edward III. In Act Two, we move to Southampton. In Act Three, we we're in the fields of Normandy. And the Battle of Agincourt takes place in Act Four. And interspersed with Henry's rather heroic speeches are scenes with ordinary English folk who are kind of low-level characters. And oddly, they spend most of their time squabbling and fighting. And they're not particularly appealing either. Each act is introduced by a chorus figure who arouses the audience a bit like a warm-up act. And yet even Henry himself, despite these great flights of rhetoric that happen in the play, even Henry is pretty unlikable. He threatens violence in some of the most cruel ways. So it's often celebrated as a kind of depiction of... England at its greatest military moment. You know, the English love celebrating their military victories, don't they? And yet, in fact, Henry is a pretty cruel and dubious figure. This is a very ambiguous play. Critics are undecided as to whether it's nationalistic or whether, in fact, it offers a criticism of this jingoistic, yeah, let's go get them.
1: Shakespeare's genius at work there, always keeping us guessing. Alice, Duncan mentioned that the play was written in 1599. This is quite a busy year for Shakespeare in terms of production. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And also, do you know when and where it was first performed?
0: So one of the things I like most about talking about when this was written is that we actually have in the text a very clear idea of when exactly it was, because there's an allusion to Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, talking about Henry coming back to England as like the general of our gracious empress which is obviously about Devereux and we know in 1599 that he was at war in Ireland or he was trying to quash a rebellion and it failed extremely miserably came back in disgrace so it must have been written before that happened. By the middle of the year, we know that it was quite clear it wasn't going to work, it wasn't going to succeed, he wasn't going to be successful. So it must have been written before that happened. So this little few words tells us exactly when it must have been written. It's such a nice thing as a historian to look back and actually have that precisely in there, because a lot of the plays we don't know. And we have large amounts of years where things may have been written. But there's this precision to that. In terms of the play itself, where it was performed, we have a similar allusion. It's generally accepted that it was put on at the Globe. Mostly that's because there is also a comment about the physical being of the structure of the Globe. There's a mention of the wooden O. It's something that we still talk about now when we talk about the Globe. If it was put on at the Globe, then it means it's probably one of the first, if not the first, of the plays that was performed there. There are still people who think that it may have been put on at the Curtain. I think it's quite convincing that there's a mention of the wooden O. It means that at least it was being talked about. The structure was known by Shakespeare. So if it hadn't been built yet, it was very, very soon that it would be.
1: Duncan, am I right in thinking that there are two versions of this play?
2: Yeah, that's right. It was first printed in 1600 in a small sixpenny format. You'd buy it in fairly loose sheets and wouldn't be probably bound with hardback covers. You'd have to go to a bookbinder for that. But it would cost you sixpence and it's a rubbish version of the play. (laughs) It is very short. It's only 1,600 lines long. Whereas the actual play that you will go and see if you go and see it at the theatre is over 3,000 lines long. The smaller version printed in 1,600 and reprinted again, but essentially the same text, was called a quarto. So essentially, the quarto is a mangled version of the play as it then later appears seven years after Shakespeare died in what's called the first folio. So the first folio is the first complete works of Shakespeare. Not quite complete, but we'll call it that for the sake of argument. So the first folio, published 1623, seven years after Shakespeare died, that has the full text. And it's twice as long as the 1600 quarto. Now, some people seem to think that... The folio text, the 1623 text, was somehow produced later than the 1600 version. It seems counterintuitive to think of them actually in reverse order to that. But what Alice has just said is absolutely critical to understanding the play. Because in the longer version, but not in the shorter version, we have this allusion to the departure of the Earl of Essex, going to Ireland and then coming back. And that we can date to spring 1599, what this means is that the long folio text predated in manuscript the 1600 quarto. And that is quite a key insight because it applies to other Shakespeare texts as well. We cannot go around assuming that the texts printed in 1623 later edition predate the quartos that occurred in Shakespeare's lifetime.
1: And I suppose the other thing to think about, as well as when and where, is for whom. Do we know, Duncan, who the company was that Shakespeare wrote for? Do we have any idea who the performers might have been?
2: Yes, quite a lot of idea, actually. He wrote for the Lord Chamberlain's Men. He was made a member of that company. That company was formed in 1594. Richard Burbage played Henry V. Sometimes we think of these actors as being fairly rudimentary, like rude mechanicals, but I think he must have been a matter of great flexibility and versatility and charisma. He played Romeo, he played Hamlet, he played King Lear, he played Othello. There is also these two amazing boy actors who played the female roles. They are the unsung heroes of that theatre company.
1: Okay, so let's go into the experience of going to the theatre in Shakespeare's time. I know there's wonderful research on this. What was it like to go to the theatre in the 1590s, 1600s? Who might have been going?
2: Almost everyone might have been going, except the absolutely destitute vagrant. But we know that the range of Elizabethan society went to see these plays. And you pay a penny to go and stand in the yard, or sixpence to go and sit up in the galleries... Everybody wanted to go. If you think about these theatres holding about, some people have estimated 3,000 people. I think that's too much. Let's halve that. Let's say each of the theatres could have 1,000 to 1,500 people. They were playing every day through the week, weekends as well. So that's an awful lot of people, considering that London's population are only about 200,000 in 1,600. A single play can reach almost the majority of people in London if enough people go and see it. That was the entertainment. The watermen, the ferrymen, the people who rode you across the river, loved the theatres on the South Bank because, of course, it gave them employment. And so the theatres on the South Bank were a major part of the economy of early modern London. And of course, they were beautiful buildings. I mean, even now, I think the Globe Theatre, the Globe Reconstruction is my favourite place to go and see a Shakespeare play. It was a social occasion. And the one thing about This play is it has choruses. An actor addresses the audience absolutely directly and asks the audience to think and to imagine and begs, if you like, the suspension of disbelief. So this play has a contract with its audience and it's asking the audience to think. And I think this is something that Shakespeare was very interested in as he developed in his career, the idea of consciousness as part of theatre. Not just that Henry as a character will commit to a belief and act on it, but that the audience will commit to this story. And that sense of thinking, I think, is really, really crucial.
1: That's fascinating. I mean... You know, Fleabag was not doing anything original, it turns out. Shakespeare was there before her. And it, of course, is written in the play. I mean, one of the famous speech from Henry V has that amazing line, all things are ready if our mind be so. And essentially, Shakespeare is asking the audience to get their minds ready. And that chimes, I suppose, very much with what I remember reading some years ago about how often going to the globe was an audible experience as much as it was a visual experience. And I'm thinking if you listen to an audio book or even when you're reading, actually much of the work is done in the mind of the reader or the listener. And I suppose in some ways, because it obviously is impossible without a film crew and thousands of extras to stage Agincourt, Shakespeare is asking his watchers, his listeners, to buy into the experience with him. I like the idea that there's a contract, a
0: dialogue between what's happening on stage and what's happening in the audience. But it's also maybe about the fact that these were also printed. These were also read at the time. And you can't forget that it's not just an audience. It's also people who are reading the plays and having to imagine even the voices of all the characters. But in all of his plays, he asks us to join. It's not about them and us. It's about a collaboration. The audience is always part of it. The magic doesn't work in Midsummer Night's Dream if you don't believe it. It's the same with Henry V. You have to believe that there's something happening in front of you that you're part of. And it makes you complicit. It makes you empathetic as well. He's so clever
1: at drawing you in. If the play had been performed at an indoor playhouse like Blackfriars, would it have had a different audience to an outdoor space like the Globe? It's completely different.
0: When you have the outdoor spaces, it's really for everyone. You've got much cheaper tickets. You can go almost for nothing. So it's inviting everyone to come. At an indoor space, you have the cheapest ticket is more expensive than the most expensive ticket at the Globe. So you've got only the absolute elite They did perform different plays as well. Interestingly, the Blackfriars was not an adult company that was performing there. You've got children's companies. So again, it elevates the idea of the boy actors because they're actually more expensive to go and see than going to see Shakespeare. Interestingly, the Blackfriars at this time, or a little bit later, is basically coming out of a decree which banned having an indoor playhouse in that space. So the government decided that for whatever reason, probably from pressure from the people who lived in the area who were wealthy nobles, who didn't want everyone turning up, anyone's allowed in type venue. So they put a decree that there was not allowed to be a common playhouse, that was the term. And so they thought around this and thought, OK, well, we will do an indoor venue, which is a private space as opposed to a public space, which means that only a certain amount of people are allowed in and only a certain class.
1: I want to think a bit more about the audience because this is a play that has at heart ideas of othering and foreignness. Duncan, do you think that its contemporary audience would have been predominantly English?
2: Yes, I think. That's likely. I mean, it would have been quite an experience, wouldn't it, if you're French sitting in the. I mean, there were French people in London and no doubt all kinds of people might have seen this play. One of the most interesting things I ever heard, and I wish I'd remembered who actually wrote this, I think it was a letter to the TLS. It was a very short letter, and they simply said, because there was a lot of argument about where Shakespeare stood, you know, where could you find Shakespeare's beliefs, his religious belief or political belief? Mm. You know, is he on the side of the king, or is he on the side of the commoners? And this person wrote in and said, look, Shakespeare takes himself out of his plays and puts his audience in. So you get the range of views that his audience might have in the play. And we do get these rather slightly almost pastiche depictions of the French, with the Dauphin boasting about his horse, and he writes sonnets to his horse and calls his horse his mistress. But remember, Shakespeare also lodged with, not yet, not in 1599, but in 1604, he was lodging with French Huguenots. And Shakespeare's writing quite a bit of French into this play and having a bit of fun with it I mean you would have to be a fairly elite member of the audience you had to be pretty well educated to get the dirty jokes that Catherine of France and Alice her serving maid give us in the middle scenes of the play so yes it would have been mainly English would they have filed out of the theatre thinking oh that was great we defeated the French well I'm not so sure because Right at the end of the play, even though Harry or King Henry is called the Star of England, nevertheless, the chorus ends by saying, well, Henry VI followed this, and let's face it, folks, it all went to shit.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's interesting, isn't it, Alice? Because if you think of the way that this play has been interpreted, think of, say, Lawrence Olivier in 1944, it's been as a call to patriotism. But given what Duncan's just been saying there, is it possible to call this play patriotic? I think
0: what that film
1: does, interestingly,
0: is the only way that it works as a completely nationalist or patriotic play is to actually smooth over a lot of the rough edges to cut out a lot of the play. What Duncan was talking about just now with the inclusion of the French, I think is extremely interesting because when you often see the play performed, there's a decision made to either make the entire play English which is a strange choice because it means that you actually have to translate the original French being spoken back into English. Or you have, I've seen recently, all of the French characters speaking French. So you have to make a decision about what it's saying about being English and being French, or even just about being
2: other It's very easy for us today, in the comfort of living in peacetime, to be rather judgmental about this play and see it, especially in Olivia's 1944 depiction, which is a film I really admire. But I also have lots of problems about it. But just in preparation for this, I was noticing two of those actors, the actors who played Fluellen and Pistol. So the actor who played Fluellen was Esmond Knight. And Pistol was played by Robert Newton. Both of those have been demobbed from the Second World War. They both served in the Navy just before they acted in Henry V in 1944. And you can see from Flewellyn's performance in the Olivier film that Flewellyn is almost blind. And Esmond Knight was hit by shrapnel from a shell and very nearly killed. And here he is performing in a play about warfare at a time of warfare Robert Newton also medically discharged. And I know a number of the other actors also sought military service. So I think while obviously we're going to make ethical judgments about the patriotism, the jingoism, the sabre rattling, the warlike Harry that is rather off putting, nevertheless, some of those cars stood up to fascism. And I think that is a very uncomfortable place to be. And it takes a huge amount of courage to do that. While I see the war against Hitler was nothing like the campaign Henry is waging, the reasons for it, or spurious reasons for it, in France. But nevertheless, I think that film, Olivia's film, is shaped by very challenging conditions. And I would just put in a word for that, really, that historical specificity.
1: And I know that we have some listeners in Ukraine... So there will be people listening to this who are not in peacetime circumstances, and then of course the play has very different connotations. All this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I'll be asking who really were the Vikings. How did they become so successful in spreading across Northern Europe and beyond, from the late 8th to the 11th centuries? What are the stories we tell about them and what legacy did they leave behind for us today? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and throughout September I'll be examining the big questions about the Vikings with a host of experts and answering all of your burning questions about the Viking Age as well. So, for everything you always wanted to know about the Vikings, subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: I suppose also getting back to that question of foreignness. Alice, do you have a sense of attitudes to foreigners at this time in the late 16th century? Well, there were quite a lot of riots going on, but you've
0: also got a lot of foreign-born people living in London. Maybe they weren't going to the theatre, but you certainly had a lot of people connected to it. You have Dutch, you have French, you have Spanish, you have Italian, all working in textile trades who would have dressed a lot of the performers. You've got that work actually being seen maybe by a predominantly English audience. So it's part of it. But there was the same kind of dialogue that we've been hearing recently, about fears of foreign workers, there's a lot of the same dialogue that we've heard around Brexit was happening then, English workers worrying that they were going to lose jobs because there were foreign workers coming in. It's certainly nothing
1: new. Duncan, this, of course, is a history play. We're marking 600 years since Henry V died. But even when Shakespeare was writing, it was almost 200 years earlier Why do you think Shakespeare wrote so many history plays? Does it speak to the sort of commercial imperative that they were popular with audiences?
2: They're a fairly new thing at the beginning of the 1590s when Shakespeare arrives in London and he's starting to write. Shakespeare's very hard at work in the early 1590s writing his first tetralogy, which is the story of Henry VI and the civil war between the houses of Lancaster and York those are clearly very successful. They're big productions. I mean, they require a lot of actors. It's actually those people who've traced the number of actors required in certain plays, you know, bring this out very clearly. I think Henry six Part three, for example, it requires as many as 80 speaking parts, I think. They would have doubled a lot. Why is Shakespeare interested in history plays? Well, somehow he's got hold of, he's got Raphael Hollinshed's the chronicle history of England and access to in the early 1590s, Edward Hall's The Union of the Illustrious Houses of Lancaster and York. So he's got access to these chronicle histories. And what he's doing is he's turning these fairly two dimensional, sort of flat prose pieces into living drama. He's embodying it on the stage. It's quite a complex thing to do, in fact. And he's also writing these plays not just for an audience in the theatre. He's writing in a literary way. Lucas Earn wrote a brilliant book on Shakespeare as a literary dramatist. Now, I don't go wholly agree with Lucas on everything, but nevertheless, Shakespeare was literary from the start. But the, here's the thing, even in the midst of writing these early history plays, what's so interesting about Shakespeare's early career is his ability to mix genres, because it is now broadly accepted that Shakespeare wrote the middle scenes of Arden of Faversham, which is a true life murder mystery set in Faversham, Kent. The story is from Hollinshed's Chronicles. It's there. Shakespeare is writing at least some scenes of it, really at the same time as he's writing the history plays. Arden of Faversham has scenes set in London. Shakespeare clearly knows the vicinity. So he's doing that. And he's also writing The Taming of the Shrew. And he's writing The Comedy of Eris. (laughs) Extraordinary generic flexibility and skill.
1: Alice, do we have other playwrights who are writing about kings and kingship, this sort of history plays at the time?
0: There's quite a lot. I think it says a lot about how popular it must have been because really no-one was writing about things unless they were commercially viable. This was a job and it had to be popular, otherwise they wouldn't keep putting them on. Marlowe's got Edward II, Tamerlane. You've got sort of more specific plays about real kings. You've got Hayward doing Edward Fourth. Then you also have some imagined monarchies, if you like, things like a game of chess. What I love is how quickly also some people were writing about the recent past. Hayward wrote, if you know not me, you know nobody, very, very quickly after Elizabeth I died. But it was all about Mary I and Elizabeth I. So you've got this very quick turnaround where an audience was seeing probably a history they'd lived through, you know, much like we might go and see something that is about the Cold War or recent past as opposed to something that's happening 200 years before. And of course, the audience has been through a huge change in the way that you view kings and queens. You've just had the first two queens in English history. You've had the change of religion. There's an enormous change. So the fact that they were thinking about the recent past, I think it makes sense. Of course they would be because the change is enormous.
1: Do we know how much this play is true to history, to what happened at Agincourt? Given that Shakespeare's drawing on chronicle sources, is he following them closely or is he going off piece? I think it's probably one of his most impressive
0: traits that people read his plays and think they're exactly what happened. I think it says a lot about his abilities as a dramatist that a lot of understanding of history is actually taken from fiction. Of course, he did use these sources. Some of the sources are more reliable than others, but it is fiction. We don't know what any of these people were thinking. It's the beauty of watching the drama. It's an imagined history.
1: So, Duncan, this is the last play in the Tetralogy and you've had Richard II, you've had Henry IV parts one and two, in which we've had the young Henry V introduced as Prince Howe. I remember studying this at school and that scene, banish Jack Forstaff and banish all the world. I do. I will. Would a contemporary audience have been familiar with the preceding plays and then therefore the character of... Henry as young, how, when they came to watch Henry V, Duncan?
2: I think it's highly likely that they would. Shakespeare partly is responding to the popularity of certain characters, Falstaff being the most amazing creation of these plays. Now, there's quite a lot to say about Falstaff. He was originally called Sir John Oldcastle, and Shakespeare seems to have been under pressure to change the name of Oldcastle to Falstaff because Shakespeare's boss at the time, Sir William Brooke, was distantly ancestrally related to Sir John Oldcastle. And of course, Falstaff is tavern haunting, whoremongering, the fat knight, as he's called in Henry V. And of course, in Henry V, famously, Shakespeare makes good on that vow of Hals that you quoted there, I do, I will, and kills off Falstaff. And indeed, I think it's Mistress Quickly says, the king hath killed his heart. There's pathos and humour surrounding the death of Falstaff. The death of Falstaff is something I'm particularly interested in. One of the things that we find in the Bridewell records is that the sons of Sir William Brooke, Shakespeare's boss, who's ancestrally related to Oldcastle, are behaving just as Jack Falstaff is in the play. So I wonder if Falstaff is a kind of composite figure, and Shakespeare doesn't really like this boss. How do we know that? Well. Shakespeare was very close to the faction of the Earl of Essex, and particularly the Earl of Southampton. And the Brooke family hated Southampton and Essex, so much so that when Essex launched his failed rebellion, it was the Brooke family who had a line of musketeers beside the Thames waiting to shoot them to pieces. So it was murderous. The question is, how did Shakespeare negotiate this factional division close to the court... The question is not so much, you know, why did Shakespeare make Falstaff a whoremonger and a glutton and a drunkard? The question is really, why did he make Falstaff so likeable?
1: Alice, we've talked about the fact that, you know, when put on in 1944, this had contemporary resonances. And of course, the play has this moment, St Crispin's Day, famously enough, 25th of October, 1415, when Henry defeats the French at Agincourt with a force that is greatly smaller than the French army. Did this play have relevance to the contemporary audience? Were they thinking of, I don't know, Ireland? Were they thinking of themselves pitted against Europe? I think you have a really interesting time here. You've got, obviously, the Irish
0: rebellions. You've got wars with Spain. There's the idea of conquest and colonial might, we might say. Around about this time, you've got the first charter for the East India Company, So you've got the idea of England almost flexing its muscles. You've got this sense of wanting to feel mastery, whether or not that comes from the fear that no one really knew what was going to happen after Elizabeth died. There was no real clear line of succession. There's a lot of fear there. And I think that with that, you have a character like Henry who has a lot of doubts you're seeing him grow from a younger man in the previous plays into a king who still feels like he doesn't necessarily have the right to rule. He is going to war in a sense because he wants to prove himself. There's also a statement there about the fact that he chooses then to cement his success by marrying Catherine. It's an interesting choice because There's something about the legitimising of his right to rule through warfare by marrying the Princess of France, who has a right to rule because of a birthright. So you've got this marriage of different ways to rule coming together in one person. I think it would have spoken a lot to the contemporary audience.
1: Would it be fair to say that Henry V is a particularly Elizabethan hero then, Alice? I'd say so. I mean, he's almost an
0: idealized hero. But you see him succeed continually. The battles play out in front of you in a much quicker succession than they did in reality. They actually take out quite a lot of his very skillful decisions that he made actually in France. He was there for a lot longer period. And a lot of that skill and decision-making is taken out of the play. But what you have instead is a kind of ideal version of someone who can't fail. So you have an idea that it's a God-given right, that he will succeed no matter what. He will go to France, he's all-powerful because he's England, and he will prove that mastery over the French.
1: It's interesting that this is being created at this time as well, isn't it, Duncan? Because we've had Elizabeth I on the throne for more than 40 years. There's still doubts about the issue of succession because she won't name her successor. I mean, James VI looks likely, but they don't know if it's going to be guaranteed. It's not necessarily going to be undisputed. Do you think that the play speaks to this uncertainty about royal authority, about who had the right to rule? And it's trying to speak into that space, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I certainly do. Alice is absolutely right in a way to say that, you know, he is England and watch out France, England is coming. But at the same time, you know, Henry himself before the battle prays and he has moments of doubt. You know, he goes to, you know, it's a disguised king play, isn't it? He goes through the camp and actually ends up in skirmishes with some of the soldiers, partly for fun. This is kind of just going to please the crowd, I suppose. But there are statements about the king that are questioning you know not only does henry himself has a debate doesn't he about the responsibility of the king for his soldiers is it the king's fault if the soldiers end up dying and henry brushes it off and says no not at all but he is having a bit of a stormsy moment if i can call it a heavy is the head that wears the crown which actually comes out of henry the fourth but nim says the king hath run bad humors on the night And that's the even of it. Pistol says the king's a boar cup but then follows that up by saying he's an imp of fame and says, I love the lovely bully. Is it criticism or is it praise? And Williams, one of the soldiers, has almost one of the most critical dialogues with Henry about kingship and says, look, you know, how do we know you're not going to offer yourself a ransom? If we're dead, you may well ransom yourself. What good is that to us? And He says, the king himself hath a heavy reckoning to make when all those legs and arms and heads chopped off in a battle shall join together at the latter day. So there's a kind of subtle critique going on here. And I think the audience are not fools. Shakespeare's not trying to brainwash his audience in any way.
1: We've got an epilogue at the end of this play, and it reminds us that 40 years after Henry V's success, actually the English didn't hold half the things he had conquered. They'd lost Gascony, they'd lost Normandy, they'd just got Calais, and by the time Shakespeare's writing, they've lost that as well. What do you think the play has to say about the nature of conquest? It's interesting, isn't it? Because that was a
0: deliberate choice by Shakespeare. He could have finished it with just a successful battle and conquest and the heroes welcomed back to England. But what he does do is he reminds us that nothing is sort of certain, nothing is permanent and maybe does have something to do with the uncertainty of Elizabeth. Maybe it has something to do with a feeling about war as a whole. There had been quite a lot of war and conquest at this point and quite a lot of uncertainty. What I find fascinating is that you've got representations of what we call Britain now. We've got Scotland, we've got Wales, we've got Ireland and we've got England but this is before that actually occurs. It's fascinating to me that Shakespeare decided to write a character from each of these countries, all fighting for England before we have James I. It's this almost prescience that this is going to happen. There is going to be a unity, and yet there's no unity in there. (laughs) There's all this infighting, but it's a fascinating thing when you watch it now because you think, oh, well, this can't have been written then. It must have been written
1: later. It must have been changed. You just think it's too clever. Mm-hmm. That's so brilliant. Okay. So this is a question for both of you. Given that the play is over 400 years old, it's about events that are more than 600 years old. Do you think it still has relevance today?
2: I think very often we find relevance. Sometimes relevance is thrust upon us. But... Yeah, as you said, there will be people in Ukraine listening to this. And a lot of critical writing has been devoted to the topic of warfare in this play. I think the thing that comes out for me is the play can be performed in lots of different ways, but it is in the end the cruelty of war, the savagery of war that sticks out for me. The fact that Henry threatens Harfleur with his soldiers smashing the place to pieces, slaying the old folk of the town, raping the daughters and putting the infants of the town on spikes. That speech is very often cut, but I think it's the violence of this play. And this is something also that I think was part of Shakespeare's talent He understood what violence was. I don't think he liked it. I don't think he celebrated it. But he knew that a war play is going to have to be violent. I It does make you think, you know, this play has battles, doesn't it? On stage, we see people fighting on stage. I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent. You know, where in modern drama do we see people with machine guns shooting each other or slaying each other? There's a brutality about this play that is deeply uncomfortable, and a masculinity about this play that is uncomfortable at times. One of the most also memorable moments of it is when the Duke of Exeter describes the death of Suffolk and York saying to Suffolk, don't die just now because I'm about to join you. And York goes to Suffolk, who may be dead at that point, and kisses Suffolk on the lips. And I'm trying to think of another Shakespeare play where two men kiss each other on the lips. And this play, for all its brutality which is upsetting, also has this moment of tenderness in the midst of cruelty and awfulness, just the worst kind of suffering that we can inflict on each other. The tenderness of two men whose dying breath is taken together in a kiss. And it's almost as if Shakespeare puts that in to say that is the right and proper thing at that moment. It's the right thing to do, to join together in the midst of appalling suffering. I think that's what I kind of take away from it really.
1: Thank you. Alice? I
0: want to go back to that idea that Shakespeare asks us to imagine and to join and to collaborate because I think with time audiences and readers will always find something different to discuss. It's why they'll last forever. These plays They have something to say about the time they were written, but they have something to say about humanity in general. And so we imbue them with our own interests, with our own feelings. Someone seeing this who has been through war is going to have a different experience of the play than I will. Someone who has gone through sexual violence will have a different feeling when they see this. It's up for interpretation. It's up for internal reflection. You take it in, and there is something about your consciousness. It's about the thought process. It's about how we feel about the world and how we fit into it. And that's why it will always be relevant. Drama is always relevant because it's not speaking to you like a sermon, it's about community.
1: Well, thank you both so very much for sharing your thoughts and your expertise with me and with all of us today. It's been wonderful and I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Now, there's a very special offer over on History Hit where we release two new exclusive documentaries every week. So you don't just get your two hits of Not Just The Tudors, you could get two brand new exclusive documentaries every week. And of course, access to every episode of History Hits ever-growing podcast network, but without the ads. When you sign up for a monthly subscription, use the code TUDORS or N-J-T-T, and you'll get two weeks free, followed by 50% off your first three months. You can find out more by following the link in the episode notes below this podcast. And can I ask you a favour? Please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And do send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts. You can do that via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at at historyhit.com. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.